And those who are joining online, you can uh, also comment in the comment section throughout the service. We would love to get to know you, interact with you. As John mentioned, you could fill out the Connect card online as well during the service so we can help you find a place and, and get connected in the church as well. James chapter 2, hear the reading of God's word, starting in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, so also faith, apart from works, is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to tag our text today, dead or alive, dead or alive. Let's pray before we jump in. Father, we come to you this morning amazed that you would meet with us wherever we are. God, you meet with us in this building, you meet with us in our homes, you meet with us in our cars, at the park, in the school, you, you meet with us wherever we may be today. And you promise you to, to meet us in the midst of whatever mess we have. And we don't get the privilege of your pre presence because of some work we've done, but because of the work you've done, because of the work that Jesus has done on our behalf, we get the wonder of a relationship with you. And so we pray today, God, as we wrestle with that, we wrestle with the, the mystery of how you work in us and you work through us and you call us to this life of following you. We pray, God, you would open our hearts and our minds to hear from the Spirit. Help us to see what a living faith really looks like. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, they make the finest counterfeit money in the world. And most of the counterfeit money you probably wouldn't find if you visited the country of Peru, but, but you would know eventually that it's, it's produced and carefully crafted out in the countryside of the nation. And they, they uh, create this counterfeit money and they pack it into uh, luggage and, and toys and uh, clothing and, and hollowed out Bibles, whatever you can find, that they will, they will put it into these items and they will pack it onto ships and onto planes and they will send it to the U.S. and throughout the world. 
And actually, the U.S. Secret Service, who is in charge of managing kind of counterfeit and, and finding all these things and works a lot in Peru, they, they estimate that over 60% of the world's counterfeit money comes from Peru. It's that good. Like you, you can tell when someone's made it on their little inkjet you know, printer at their house and they tried to make a $20 bill because they thought it'd be cool, versus this stuff looks, feels real. But, you know, as they work to try to, to, to figure out what's going on and, and stop these people from creating this counterfeit money, they make these major busts. And a few years ago, they made the, the largest bust they had ever made. They, they spent years, you know, gathering intelligence and, and they got together and they raided these different places and were able to bust $30 million in counterfeit money. Largest they've ever done. But here's the thing, even though they, they were able to capture eight printing presses and, and six different plants were shut down and hundreds of, of uh, plates that they used for the, for the mold were, were captured, even though all of that, it was just a drop in the bucket. As they were interviewing the, the agents who were on the case and working together with the Peruvian police, one of the agents said this, and it stood out to me. He said, there's no counterfeit note that I'm aware of that can pass the technology of our banks. And so there's really no serious threat to our banking system. But listen to this. But the integrity, the integrity of the U.S. dollar is at stake. The integrity. In other words, what, what he's saying and speaking about this counterfeit money is integrity requires something to be real. For it to have integrity, it, it has to be what it says it is. And so that question, is it real? I mean, it's, it's a question we should be asking about all kinds of things in life, right? We, we shouldn't just be asking about counterfeit money, but, but especially, especially our faith. Is it real? Because I, I think it's a question that many of us don't ask because it's a searching question. It's a terrifying question. It might even be a, a somewhat uh, unfamiliar question because many of us, may, maybe you've been around the church for a while and, and it's kind of odd for someone to say, is your faith real? Because the last time you thought about that was maybe when you were eight or maybe when you were 15 or maybe when you, know, you first became a believer in Christ and, and you haven't really thought about that much. And so there's kind of this assumption in the American church that if you say you believe in Jesus, you must really be a Christian. If you say with your words you are something, you must be it. But just like with counterfeit money, just because something presents itself to be one thing doesn't mean it really is. And so the question becomes, how do you tell? It's easy to tell when it's, you know, the counterfeit money made at someone's house. How do you tell counterfeit money that's world class? The answer is the same. You, you hold it up against the real thing, right? You hold it up against the real thing and, and you're able to see, is this real? And so as we continue our series today through the letter of James, uh, we're calling the series of faith that works, a faith that works. And, and uh, we've been looking at this idea of real faith throughout the letter already. It, it's a major theme in James's letter is what does it mean to have 
real faith. And James, as we've been talking about, has been writing to these Christians who are dispersed throughout the area, right? They're, they're spread out. They, they've been persecuted. They've been divided. There's crisis in their context. And, and the crisis that they find themselves in is beginning to push people, much like today, push people to ask, is my faith real? Is what I said I believed when I was in the comfort of Jerusalem, is it real when I'm now in the discomfort of the dispersion? Is it real? And so James uses this even stronger metaphor, I would say. He uses, is it dead or is it alive? Is it dead or is it alive? And so today we're going to look at how does that, uh, how, how does that work? What, what, what do we uh, do to, to understand whether our faith is dead or alive. And so first, if you're taking notes, we've got to look at a dead faith. A dead faith. This is the first point. James continues what he had been saying earlier in the chapter in verse 14. Look at what he says. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, we got to read James' words in context, right? When you're reading the Bible, you're trying to understand the Bible, you always have to read the context. Context is king. It helps you understand what's happening. And so if you look at the context of James, James has been using this thread throughout the letter, and it continues to go on in the rest of the letter, of this conflict between rich and poor, right? In chapter 1, he describes real religion or true religion, the pure and undefiled religion that he's, he's uh, giving a vision for, he describes it as a love and a, and a care for the vulnerable, for the widows and the orphans, for those who are poor and marginalized. He says that's what real religion is. And then he begins to step back and, and make it uh, practical. He, he says, let's talk about your congregation. And in chapter 2, he says, some of y'all are coming in here and you're treating the poor people in your church wrongly. You're treating them like the world would treat them, and the stain of the world has come on the church. That's what we looked at last week, right? So he keeps that same thread, this, this conflict between the rich and the poor, and now he gives us another scenario. He says, if, uh, if, if one of your Christian brothers or sisters comes to you and, and you notice or, or you hear from them that they're in need, they, they need food, they need shelter, they need clothing, whatever, basic needs, they, they need help financially, and you say to them, hey, uh, you know, I really can't help. I'm, I'm, I'm busy right now. You know, I wish I could help, but I'll pray for you. I hope it works out for you. James says, what good is that? Right? Listen, what good is that for them first? Right? He, he's, saying, he's saying you, by your response of just words, you're you're saying that you're taking them apart as a person and saying, I'm going to treat your soul differently than I'm going to treat your body. I'm going to pray for your soul and care for you spiritually, but when it comes to your physical needs, I don't have time or space or energy for that. What good is that for them? But then he flips it and he says, what good is that for you? Listen to what he says. He says, what good is that for you? He says, can that kind of faith even save you. 
Now, I'm not a Greek expert, but I, I know a little bit about Greek grammar from, from seminary, and, and there's this phenomenon in Greek where you can, you can form a question in a way that tells you the answer. And, and you look at the Greek grammar here in this question, and the answer that is, is given in the way the question is asked is no. You cannot be saved. I mean, this is, this is tough. He says, a faith without, without works, but only words, the answer is it cannot save you. God talk without God acts is about as good as a dead, cold corpse. So dead faith is displayed by dismissing the poor. By dismissing the poor. On Tuesday, I was... Uh, I was spending some time praying through this passage, reading. It's usually Tuesday mornings. I'm trying to get going on, on thinking about the sermon. And I'm reading and praying and getting excited to preach and thinking about this idea of how do we love the poor and the vulnerable and how can God use us as a church and thinking through all kinds of things and spend a couple hours reading and praying. And then I leave and I go for a walk. And I'm walking downtown right out here outside of our church. And as I'm walking downtown, a homeless man, a younger man, comes up to me and he asks me the question that most of you have probably been asked if you've been downtown is, hey man, I'm looking for some change. I want to buy some lunch. Do you have anything you could give me? Almost without hesitation, like it was a reflex, I started hearing the words out of my mouth. No, I, I don't have anything to help you with right now. I hope, it, you know, I hope, I hope you have a great day. Minutes. After I read this, I, I was literally, as I'm thinking about it, saying it, I'm thinking in the back of my mind, I, I do. I mean, usually I don't. Usually I don't have cash on me, but this was the rare instance where I had $20 in my wallet and, and I lied. I just said, no, I have nothing, knowing I have something in my wallet. Minutes after I read this after I had prayed through it. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm just a sinful mess. And I think most of us are. I think most of us, we settle for a kind of faith that's words without works. A kind of faith that many of us have been discipled into thinking and believing and living as if the most important thing about our Christianity is what we say and what we think. And so we know all the right answers, because that's what matters, is to have all the right answers. We know all the right answers. We can articulate the, the doctrine of the Trinity. We can tell you the, the inspiration of the Scripture. We can find Ecclesiastes in the Bible. We can quote the 23rd Psalm that our mom taught us when we were kids. We can, we can do all these things. We can know the gospel. We can apply it to our own hearts. We can speak the language, or at Strong Tower, right, you can take a stand for social justice, but it's just words. It's just Facebook posts. It's just conversations at your connect group. It's words without works. It's theory. It's an idea. It's a value system of principles and concepts. James tells us the real thing is a real faith about real love. It's an action. In particular here in James, right? It's an action-oriented love for the poor. 
right? Faith is expressed in many different ways. It's not just for the poor. It's, it's love towards your neighbor. It's love towards your spouse. It's love towards your coworker. It's, it's love in all of life. But James wants to bring a specific issue to mind is how are you loving the poor? I mean, James said, or sorry, Jesus said that he came in Luke chapter 4 to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to liberate those who are oppressed. Paul says it again in Galatians chapter 2. He says, all that they asked, speaking of the apostles, all that they asked was that we continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. I mean, this is the emphasis throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. You hear God's heart for the poor and marginalized. And so what does that look like? I mean, this is where we really struggle. Pastor, are you saying every time somebody asks me for some money, I got to empty out my pockets or somebody calls me and says they, they can't pay their light bill. Now I have to give money. Does, does that mean a Christian can never say no? no I don't think that's James's point. I think James is giving a a scenario that describes a pattern. I think James is giving a scenario that describes a posture towards the poor, towards the marginalized, towards those who are in need. And so the question becomes, asking yourself, does my faith express itself in love for the poor? Does my faith dismiss the poor? Does my faith deny the physical needs of others and separating it into this either or of I'll care for your soul, but I don't care for your body? Or is it a both and? Is it faith that loves someone's soul enough to share the gospel and tell them the truth of Jesus, but also loves them enough to say, I'll care for your needs. I'll be there for you. I'll walk with you. I will support you. James is saying faith is expressed in in that kind of work. Now, some of us, you've been in the church a while, this is going to immediately raise questions. What what does that mean about faith and works? And this passage is famous for that problem. What what does it mean to to have to work out of your faith? And how does that that come together? And this is, I'm, I'm glad you asked, this is what James calls a complete faith. A complete faith. So if you're taking notes, second point, a complete faith. Look at verse 18. James says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Now, James is, is creating this uh, hypothetical objection, right? He's, he's coming into this argument scenario and he's saying someone is going to raise the question, the objection. Okay, there's faith people and there's works people. There's people who like to know a lot of things and believe a lot of things and make sure their doctrine is right. And then there's people who get the work done, right? There's people who know how to love people and and are serious about whatever, right? There's faith people, there's works people. And James says, no, those two things are not separable. They they are meant to work together in synergy. The, The idea of a faith person without a works person or a works person without a faith person cannot exist. They're like two parts that are inseparable, right? It's, it's like a plane that needs two wings to fly or the two parts of scissors that have to come together in order to work. And he pushes further here in this context on the side of the faith-only people with this Jewish confession of the Shema. 
Right? If you know what the Shema is, it was, it was hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It was, it was the daily confession of the faithful Orthodox Jews, and they would say it all the time, and it was kind of the peak of Orthodoxy. It was the thing that you would determine this, this person knows their stuff. This person is serious about their faith. And so James does the unthinkable. He says, that's not enough. He says, you believe God is one. Good for you. That, that's good. That's true. Even the demons believe that. Even the demons? What, what are you talking about, James? Yeah, the demons. They've been with God. Their theology is actually probably better than yours. They believe in the Trinity because they've seen it. They believe in the incarnation. They they believe in the inspiration of Scripture. They, They believe in the creation of the world because they were there. Listen, hell is full of good theology. But not real faith. Not real faith. And then James brings up Abraham. He says, you want to talk about faith? Let's talk about Abraham, the father of faith. And he says, Abraham was called by God, right? Abraham was called by God and given this promise. And and the Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That verse is famous as being kind of the foundation for what we would call the doctrine of justification. And justification, simply put, is being declared righteous. Right? You, you put your faith in Jesus and God declares over you what is true about Jesus is now true about you. Even though it's really not true, you're still sinful, but God is going to see you as righteous. That's justification. He says that's what happens with Abraham, but then that's in uh, Genesis 15. You move to Genesis 22 and he says Abraham's faith is shown by him offering up Isaac, his son, to God. In other words, he was justified by faith, but that faith is now shown by what he does in action. And then James drops this bomb in verse 24. He says, verse 24, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now this verse has caused so much confusion and unnecessary heartache throughout church history. I mean, people have died over this Bible verse. So what's the deal? What what is going on? We we need to be careful here. And and I want to say that James and Paul, and really Jesus for that matter, are saying the same thing in different ways, right? Paul called it in his own writings, faith working through love in Galatians chapter 5. And then in Romans chapter 1, Paul also called it the obedience that comes from faith. Right? In other words, so Paul, so Paul was never saying that faith alone ever remains alone, but that it produces something. Or to put it another way, real faith always produces real fruit. It always does something. There, there's an action that comes out of the faith. And so the key here in James, as James describes this phenomenon of faith, he uses this phrase, you see. Now follow me for a second. He's saying you see that a person is justified by works, not by faith alone. In other words, he's saying, this is the evidence. This is how you see that a person is justified. It's by their works. He's not saying you are justified because of what you did. He's saying you are justified by faith alone, and the evidence of that is what you see. 
And I love the way he describes it when he talks about Abraham's faith. He says, Abraham's faith was completed, completed by his works. I love that word, completed, whole, integrated. It's seen, it's, it's visible. Or to put it another way, uh, complete faith is visible. Counterfeit faith is invisible, right? Complete faith is visible. You can see it, but counterfeit faith is invisible. It's just in your head. This is how Jesus saw faith. Uh, in Mark chapter 2, there's, there's a story of Jesus preaching in this house. He's in Capernaum, and, and there's people everywhere. They're, they're flooding this house. They want to hear Jesus. People want to get healed and, and words out that Jesus is doing ministry in the area. So there's this mob that just infiltrates the house. And, and there's so many people, Mark says, it's overflowing out into the street. And so in this context, outside where all the mob is gathered around this house, there's a group of friends. And this group of friends have brought their friend who's paralyzed, and they brought him on a stretcher. They were thinking, you know, there, there's this, this person out here, this man named Jesus who, who we've heard about who can heal people. Maybe if we just get him to see our friend, maybe something will happen. And so they're not going to let this crowd stop them, right? Their friend is marginalized. He's poor. He's, he's sick. He's, he's forgotten by the rest of society. If you were in this man's condition in their society, you would have no help. And so they bring this man to the house and can't get inside, but they decide instead of going in the front door, we're going to go through the roof. And so they get the man uh, on, on, the, on the stretcher, they, they put him on, on their back, and they, they carry him up the stairs of this house, and they get down on their hands and knees on the roof, and the roof is made out of wood beams and sticks. And then on top of those sticks is about one to two feet of dirt, and they start to dig dig through the roof. And you can imagine there's people inside who are listening to Jesus give a sermon and next thing they know they look up and there's commotion on the roof. People are wondering what's going on and now debris starts falling down on the people and then a beam of light, sunlight comes through the roof. What in the world is happening? Before they could figure it out, there's a man lowering down on his stretcher into the room. And everybody hushes as his body hits the dirt ground. And now everybody's wondering, what is Jesus going to do? And Jesus stuns everybody with his answer. This is what he says. He says, or the Bible says, when he saw their faith, he said, your sins are forgiven. When he saw their faith, Jesus pronounces over this man, your sins are forgiven. You have been justified. You are right with God because I saw your faith. And notice it wasn't just his faith. It was their faith, right? All the friends who, who believed enough in Jesus to say, the only hope that our marginalized poor friend has is that he comes to Jesus. And we will do whatever it takes to bring him to Jesus. We will climb up a, a ladder. We will tear through and vandalize someone's roof. We will do whatever it takes. He saw their faith. He saw friends who believed that Jesus was the only hope for their marginalized friend, and they put it into action. That is faith. Complete faith is visible. Counterfeit faith is invisible. Does Jesus see 
your faith. And what does he see? Not does he hear your faith. Not does he know about your faith. Does he see? Does he see your faith? Because he's looking for it in the way that you love the vulnerable and the forgotten. He's looking for it in the way that you care for the weak. He's looking for it in the way that you prioritize the poor. He's looking. Does he see it? And maybe you hear that today and you realize, man, my faith, it, it's either dead or it's dying. I don't know where it is, but, but I haven't thought about that in a really long time. And, and the point of James's passage is, is to get you to that point. That, that is God's grace, that he would open your eyes and let you see what you thought was alive is dead. But the, the response to that is not, oh gosh, I, I'm hopeless, right? Some of you, you might be having that, oh crap moment. My faith is not what I thought it was. I thought it was all the, the right answers that I had as a kid. I thought it was I had to walk an aisle at a church service. I thought it was praying a certain prayer with the right words. I thought it was this. But now when I look at my life, I don't see much. Well, I'm glad you're there. I'm, I'm glad God's Spirit is moving on you in that because this is exactly what James wants. And James says there is hope. There is hope for dead faith. This is what he goes on to next, in, in the next point, a living faith, a living faith. Look at verse 25, look at what he says, this is so great. He says, in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body, listen, as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, Abraham and Rahab couldn't be more opposite right? He was a Jewish man, and Rahab was a Gentile woman. He was rich, she was poor. He was a patriarch, she was a prostitute. And here's Israel about to cross over into the promised land, and, and if you know the story from Joshua chapter 2, Israel sends spies out to go check out the land. And they send spies into Jericho, and the Jericho king realizes there's spies among the land from Israel, and, and he sends out soldiers to find them and kill them. And here you have these desperate men, these men that are running for their life. Where are they going to find help? They come across Rahab the prostitute. Rahab the, the poor woman. Rahab the sexually marginalized. Rahab the, the last person in Jericho you would ever think would be in on God's plan. And Rahab brings these men, these desperate men, into her home, cares for them, hides them, and is used by God for the advancement of his plan. And the question is, why? And you go back and you read the story and, and you hear it straight from Rahab's lips. She tells the men who come into her home, she says, I, I have heard about what Yahweh has done. I've heard about how he delivered you from Egypt. I heard about how he's a liberator, how he saves. And I believe he's the real true God. I believe he's the one who can save me. I believe he's the one who can set me free. And so Rahab puts her faith in Yahweh and her faith is lived out. It's expressed in how she's loving these people. Because she knew that the only hope for her, her heart, the deadness of her heart, the sin in her heart, the, the, the brokenness in her life was to put her trust in a true God who could bring life out of death. 
She knew that she couldn't work herself out of death. She couldn't work herself out of her situation. She needed to trust in a God like that who could bring to life someone like her. See, listen to me carefully. Faith is shown alive by works, but it comes alive by grace. It's shown alive by our works, but it comes alive by grace. In 2007, there was a family in Venezuela who experienced uh, death and life in a more shocking way than usual. There was a serious car accident and, and, and deadly car accident where a man named Carlos Cameo was uh, killed and pronounced dead at the car accident, at, at the site. And, and people immediately ordered that, that uh, they clean up the site and, and took the bodies away to the morgue to do the autopsy. And, and uh, the, the medical examiners who began to do the autopsy, they realized quickly that something was wrong. As they began to operate on, on the body and, and do their examination, they realized something was wrong because the body was bleeding. And so immediately they, they realized what was happening. They sewed up the body and, and they, they tried to make everything right, but they didn't use any anesthesia, right? It wasn't like a normal surgery because they thought he was dead. And so the excruciating pain of the process apparently awakened this man out of his unconscious state. And he would later say to the, to the news reporters that he was in such pain, he, he could feel it, but he, he, he couldn't describe it, but it woke him out and he could see now. But what was even more shocking was his wife, who comes to the morgue to identify the deceased body of her husband, only to find him alive in the hallway. Completely shocking. Now listen, those medical examiners who, who stopped the autopsy knew this fact. They knew that the dead don't bleed. The dead don't bleed. That that is a sign of the living. The Hebrew prophets would say it thousands of years before. They would say it this way. They would say there's life in the blood. There's life in the blood. And, and what you see in Rahab is you see this woman who was desperate, who was broken, who, who was in, in need. And, and she came to faith in God. And, and because of her faith, her trust, she married into the bloodline who would become King David. She married and, and became the great-great-grandmother of the promised King David, who would then become the promised bloodline of Jesus himself. She would be in the bloodline of the life-giver himself. She would be in the family tree of Jesus the Savior, the one who would come to bring life. And so her faith would preclude the coming of the one who would give his blood for us. It would be his death for us that would become life for us. It would be His blood that would be hope for us. It would be His blood for us that would be change for us. There is life in the blood of Jesus. There is life in the blood that flowed from the cross at Calvary. There is life in the blood that was shed for our sins. There is life for those who are dead in their guilt and shame. There is life. And that life that Jesus promises can make the, the deadest sinner come alive. Right? As Ezekiel saw in his vision, he saw the Spirit breathe life on that valley of dry bones so God can breathe in us. The Holy Spirit can breathe on us today. These dry bones can be made alive. These bones can have muscle and tendon formed again. These bones can have skin forming again. These bones can have blood flowing again. They can stand up on their feet and walk. These bones of dead faith can live no matter how dead it is. 
but it'll only happen if the Spirit comes to breathe on us. Oh God, breathe on us. Do you need God to breathe and, and bring life into your dead faith today? That's where we're going to close. I just want to, I want to let you know, if, if that's you, if, if you find yourself in that place, don't hear, I need to now go do more. Don't, don't hear that. That's not what James is saying. His whole point is if it's dead, it can't do anything. Your, your goal is not now to go love on poor people, although that would be great, but that's not going to save you either. Your goal is not to now go do a bunch of good works to make up for all your bad works. That's not going to save you. What happens is good works come out of life. They don't produce life. The, the, the good works that God has created us for in Christ come out of life, and life only happens when God breathes on you, when He breathes on me. And so the call today is to say, God, breathe on us. Fill us. Make us alive. May the blood of Jesus bring real, real life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us